This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you have God's Word uh, in front of you, please turn in it to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, also known as the Bible, uh, we'd love to give you a copy of that. And so on your way out today, please stop by our Connect table. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word in your hand. Um, right now, I'm sure you can download something and look it on your phone. Although, obviously, ideally, it's probably not going to be good to look on your phone because if your phone's anything like me, you got a million notifications popping up on it, and so it's an easy excuse to be uh, distracted by things. So we will make sure everyone has a physical copy of God's Word in their hand, and so uh, feel free to use your phone today and then take a copy of God's Word on us uh, as you leave today. We are in a series in this book of First Peter where we are exploring what it means to live as exiles as we navigate this world that is not our home. Last week we looked at our identity as exiles in verses 1 through 2 of 1 Peter. Of how God has loved us and made us part of his family. We are God's chosen children. Which means we are no longer from this place. We're only passing through it on our way home. This morning we're going to see the hope that we can have as exiles. The context of this letter is that it was written to people who were suffering, who were going through very hard times. And when life gets hard, hope can grow dim and our fears can become bright. And for all the progress we have made in this world since this letter was written, hope seems to be in some ways even more Din. The New York Times recently ran an article called The Epidemic of Fear that is striking America. For all our progress, fear seems to actually be increasing. People are reporting being afraid at higher levels now than they were even 10 years ago. We're becoming so afraid as a culture that we're actually we're starting to make up some fairly strange fears. I looked up some recent phobias and I promise you these are all real. There is turophobia, which is fear of cheese. I was very tempted to bring some cheddar and just throw it out and see who actually suffers from this fear. But I was like, don't do that. Your pastor, you're supposed to be nice. Um, there is pognophobia, which is fear of beers, beards. Uh, I'm guessing that no one that I know has that or else they would have been running for me in terror. There is uh, areophobia, which is fear of fresh air. Uh, we don't have to worry about that fear at all here in Philadelphia. So, you know, anyways, areophobia. Just come into this city. You'll be good. There's nomophobia, which is fear of being without your mobile phone. That one strikes a little bit too close to home, so we're just going to keep moving on. Um, there are just so many different fears that we can suffer from. And, you know, some of them are funny to laugh at. They're, they're honestly irrational. But the reality is that there are some very rational fears. We live in a fearful world. Think about all the scary isms that exist. Racism is a very scary reality for many. I'm not sure if you're tracking the story or not, but there was just a 
shooting that happened in Buffalo where people were targeted and killed because and gunned down because of the color of their skin. Racism is a very scary reality. Sexism is a scary reality where in many ways, in many places, women are not being considered and treated like the Bible says as equal image bearers of God, but are being ex- uh, uh, oppressed and exploited in terrible ways. That's, that's a very scary reality in our world. There's the scary reality of nationalism. Maybe you're like, well, I know what racism and sexism is, but I'm not sure what nationalism is. You know, All I know is that our nation is the best nation superior to everyone else. Yeah, that's nationalism. It's not just love for country, which is good, but it's idolatry of country. We're better. And when you start thinking that, you can start to justify all kinds of scary things. We see Vladimir Putin right now engaging in gross nationalism. And let's be honest, our own politicians can often appeal to this. In 2020, there were quotes run of Hitler and some of the people who were running for president, and it was hard to tell the difference between which was which, as many of our own politicians were appealing to this sense of nationalism. It's a scary thing. There there are very real and scary things that we live in this fearful world. And there are all kinds of personal struggles that we can go through. Our own personal isms, if you will. Our response to this fearful world can be a sense of hopelessness. Like a gaslight coming on in our car, our fears tell us that we are running low on hope. And like a car running out of gas, we're not going to be able to make it very far in life without much hope. In psychology, there's this term called learned helplessness. It's a theory developed by experiments done by a psychologist named Martin Siegelman, where he took dogs and he gave them small electric shocks. I'm guessing it was before the days of PETA. I'm a dog lover, so I would have been against these experiments. Should have been done on cats. But anyways, they, they, they took dogs, and all the cat lovers are upset with me. Uh, but they, they took dogs, and they gave them these small shocks, and one group of dogs could push a lever to get the shocks to stop. But the other group of dogs, there was no lever. They would just get these shocks, and they would just have to wait for it to be over. And then they took both groups of dogs, and they put them in a cage where there was on a, a small fence that they could easily jump over, and they put them on one side, and they sent electrical shocks through it. The dogs that had learned that they could press a lever to get out of trouble easily jumped over immediately to the other side to safety. They learned there's something I can do to change my situation, and so they, they were happy to get out of it. But the dogs that no lever had been given, the dogs that had learned that nothing I do can change the situation I'm in, did not jump over the fence that they could have. They had learned helplessness. They just, they just stayed there, waiting for it to be over. In a world where hard things can happen, where we can get shocked, I think it can be easy to give in to a sense of learned helplessness. I'm just here and I'm just enduring. There's not much else I can do. And I think that can be especially true for us as Christians because, let's be honest, we can sometimes feel that since we are following God... We deserve to get a pass from the hard things in life. Like, I do right by God, God should do right by me. We might not say it out loud, but I think we can feel that. I know I can feel that. But then we go through hard things. As we saw last week, the context of 1 Peter is that these Christians are suffering because they are Christians. 
not only did their faith in God not spare them from hard times, their faith in God actually brought them into hard times. This world is hostile to God. And so if we are faithfully following him, we should expect it at times to be hostile to us. And as that happens, or just as we suffer in general from the various kinds of pains that life can bring, the fuel of our faith can run low, the gaslight can come on as our fears and discouragements leave us feeling empty. But today in our text, we're going to see a place that we can come to. That as we travel through this life of exile, this is a place we can come to that is meant to give us fuel for our faith. To give us hope in what seems to be an otherwise hopeless world. Let's read in God's word, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you pray God would bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. God, we pray that as we come to your word and see what you inspired Peter to write to these suffering Christians, may these words do in us what you intend them to do. May they help us in the midst of our suffering, to have fuel given for our faith in the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, we'll, we are exiles in a hopeless world, but we are not without hope in this world. We have you. Help us to see you through these words. Lord, meet us, each one of us, where we are, but please, by your grace, don't leave us as we are. May we go from this place knowing just a little bit more of Jesus today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Exiles, A Living Hope. Here's the big idea that I think this text wants to teach us. It is this. Fuel for our faith comes from the living hope of Jesus Christ. If you are feeling discouraged, if you are feeling fearful, if that gaslight has come on in your car, fuel for our faith comes from the living hope of Jesus Christ. We're going to see five things that these three verses says about what the living hope of Jesus is. I will repeat them as I go, but just to give you a, a road map of where we're headed, we're going to see how the living hope of Jesus is joyful praise, is spiritual rebirth, is resurrected guaranteed, is future inheritance, and is protective powers. Five things. Let's start with the first. The living hope of Jesus is joyful praise. Notice how this passage starts. Blessed be God. Another way to translate that would be praise be to God. This passage starts with, with praise being given to God. 
Now, in the, now, these people were suffering. They were going through hard times. Peter is going to express empathy for what they're going through in verse 6. He is going to try to help give them some theological explanation for what they're going through in verses 7 through 8. But he does not start by expressing empathy or by giving explanation. Because what they needed was not to be have empathy come to them or explanation be given to them. What they needed was to be taken outside of them. What they needed was to be taken to God. See, see, when we're going through hard times, it is easy to allow what we are experiencing to frame our view of God. But if we want to have hope, then we need to start with God and allow God to frame what we are experiencing. Peter just getting done talking about God in verse 2. We looked at this last week. How God is the Father who knows us and has chosen us to be part of His family. We're not just some faceless people who stumble and find our way to God. No, God foreknew us and chose us to be His children. He, he is the Father who knows us and loves us. He is the Spirit who resuscitates our sin-deadened hearts and brings us to faith in Christ. And He is the Son who died on our behalf so that His blood could pay for all our sins. This is our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together in perfect harmony to accomplish our salvation. And as Peter gets done talking about who God is in verse 2, he just has to then start verse 3 by saying, Praise be to God. Blessed be this God. His contemplation of who God is and what God has done leads him to want to give God some praise. See, our, our hope as Christians is not meant to be some kind of warm and fuzzy feelings. Our hope as Christians is not optimism for what we want to see happen. No, Christian hope is grounded in and founded upon the sure and true character of who God is and what He has done. See, hopelessness can be a hard cycle to get out of. Fears can often leave us feeling paralyzed. But friends, there is freedom to be found through joyful praise. See, if we, don't, if we just stay focused on our situation, then our feelings will remain focused on what we are going through. What we need is to see someone who is outside of our situation. What we need is to see God and to start with His praise. See, see, in God's divinely inspired psalm book called the Psalms, we see this pattern happen so often. Where, where the psalmist will very honestly and openly talk about hard stuff in life, but then they move to thinking about who God is, and almost a third of the psalms end with saying, blessed be God. Their, their contemplation of who God is leads them to want to praise God for who he is. And so instead of being caught in a cycle of discouragement or fear or hopelessness, a new cycle is created, that of joyful praise. But when we don't take time to contemplate and think about God, we won't find ourselves giving much praise to God, and as a result, our hope in God will grow dim. It's hard to have hope in a God that you're not praising. And praising God is what allows us to have more hope in Him. It's a cycle that feeds on itself. And this is why I think one of the greatest threats to our spiritual life is the threat of business. 
just not having time, not taking time to think deeply about God. If we have too much going on in our lives to take time to really read the Bible, to study God's Word, to meditate on it, to contemplate it, then we can't expect to be saturated in the living hope that God promises us that comes to us through knowing Him. How often, though, we can clutter our lives with busy schedules, doing things that we feel are so important, when God says that it's His Word that's meant to be our daily bread. I guarantee you, there's nothing in your life that you can, you can not live without. Everything in your life is expendable, except your daily bread. Friends, we need God's Word in our lives. If we are not daily taking in God's Word, we are spiritually starving ourselves. This is where we come to praise. We contemplate and think about who God is. And so business is a threat. Anything that's going to distract us and take us away from being in God's Word is a threat to our spiritual lives. But we can have busy schedules. Heck, we can have busy minds. We used to have just naturally built-in things to have time to think. Right? Waiting in line. Walking a dog. Going to the bathroom. Like, these used to be places where we just had space to think. But now... We don't have any time to think because we have endless distractions that we can scroll through at any given moment. And instead of actually having the valuable time of contemplation, how often we just fill and clutter our minds with business of nonsense. You know, people immediately start talking about smartphones, like, why read my Bible on my smartphone? Yes, I'm sure you do. That's great. But let's be honest. How often, like, we're reading and then a notification pops up, and the next thing you know, instead of carefully and meditatively and prayerfully reading God's word, we find ourselves scrolling through pictures of what our friends ate for dinner last night, right? Or, or the really important thing of watching a dolphin who learned how to play bingo, right? You know, or some clip of a TV show. Like, this is what we fill our minds with. And social media companies spend more money than it would take to feed a starving nation to design algorithms to get you addicted to doing this all day long. And we just get sucked in and our minds get busy. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be on social media, but I am saying that we need to find ways to create space and to protect that space for us to think. Because there are all kinds of things we can do to get quick hits of dopamine in our culture, but there's only one thing we can do to experience true and lasting joy, and that is by meditating on who God is. We need to create space to think about God. I love George Mueller, who was this uh, great man in, in England who ran all kinds of, of orphanages, just did tremendous work for the Lord. He said he made it his goal to never leave his room in the morning without his soul being made happy in God. What a great way to live. Do you have space in your life to do that? Did you have space in your life to practice what Peter is saying here, to think about God in such a way that you live the day with Oh, I don't even know what's going to happen today, but I know how I'm going to be. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The living hope of Jesus gives us joyful praise. Point number two, the living hope of Jesus is spiritual rebirth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, in order to understand what it means to be born again, we have to understand what it means biblically to be born again. The first time. 
The Bible tells us that we are all born as natural descendants of Adam, the first man. He is our common bloodline. And when God created Adam, he gave him the responsibility to guard the world that God had made. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. What does Adam do? Adam lets Satan into the garden. Adam does not protect the world God made, but instead of protecting his wife from being deceived, Adam allows her to listen to the snake, and then Adam chooses to sin against God by eating the forbidden fruit that he has handed. When that happened, Adam handed this world over to the rule of Satan. God God had given Adam the keys to the house, and Adam gave the keys away to a thief. And so the Bible says that humanity is now cursed by sin. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're born following the way of the world which is ruled over by the prince of the power of air. That's another name for Satan. And that spirit is now at work in us. We are sons of disobedience. That word son is not a gender reference. In in ancient times, the son was the one who received the inheritance. And so what this is saying is that we are all born sons. We are those who receive the inheritance of Adam's sin and Satan's rebellion. Like Adam, we're born with an innate desire to do our own thing instead of follow God's way, and we are born living under the tyrannical rule of Satan, which is so insidious and pervasive that we often don't even know that we're following him. That's what we're born into. That's our first birth. But praise be to God, that's not our second birth. Because according to God's great mercy, those who are born into this world as enemies of God, God in his great mercy gives us a new birth. Mercy is being given something that you aren't owed. In fact, it's being given the exact opposite of what you are owed. One of my favorite pieces of literature uh, is the classic novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. It's also my favorite Broadway show. Um, If you're familiar with that story, It opens with a very powerful example of mercy. The thief Jean Valjean steals some silver from a priest. He is caught by soldiers and brought before the priest. All he is owed by the priest was for the priest to say, yes, he stole what was mine and to be taken away to jail once again. That's what his actions deserve. But the priest shows him mercy. Instead of giving him what he deserves, he says, no, I did give him that silver. And they take some candlesticks and says, you forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Right? It's great to learn. He shows music. No, he doesn't show music. Sorry. I'm, I'm, just, I'm thinking I don't know music. I shouldn't have sang. That's what's going through my mind. Uh, he, he, shows, he shows mercy. He shows mercy. See, friends, we're we're all, all, all we're owed by God, all we deserve for our actions, for our life of sin, is for his justice. For him to let us stay going in the direction that we want to. But the center of the universe is a God who has a heart of mercy. And according to God's great mercy, he causes his chosen children to be born again to him. 
not given a new perspective, not straightened out and shown the right way to go. No, friends, this is spiritual rebirth. This is a completely new form of existence. To be a Christian is to be someone who is no longer bound by the sin nature of Adam, living under the tyranny of Satan. To be a Christian is to be someone who is spiritually reborn as a child of God, with a new heart that loves God, new eyes that see God, new hands that want to serve God. Yes, we can still feel the pull of our old self. Yes, we can still be tempted by the sinful nature that we used to have. Yes, we can still be tempted by Satan. But, friends, if you have placed your faith in Christ, that's because you have been born again. And so while you might be tempted by your old ways, that is not who you are anymore. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, if you placed your faith in Jesus, that is because God has caused you in His great mercy to be born again. You are no longer who you were. You are now a child of His. This is hope. This hope is joyful praise. It is the hope of spiritual rebirth. And the living hope of Jesus is resurrected, guaranteed. We all can have hopes that die. A dream job that we didn't get. A relationship that became broken. How many hopes were dashed during the pandemic? Things that we had planned for that never realized. Good friends that businesses closed never to shut their doors, never to open their doors again. How many people that we hoped to have with us were lost? We can have all kinds of hopes for various things, but none of those hopes are guaranteed to come true. And any hope that we chase in this world could die. But Jesus gives hope that will never die. Jesus gives us a living hope. He gives us the hope of himself. You see, this, this is called a living hope because it's founded upon the unalterable fact that Jesus is alive. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us this living hope. Let me give an illustration to explain how this, how this works. When a child is adopted, in order to make that adoption final, a judge has to sign their adoption papers. The judge is the only one who has authority to say that that child is now part of this new family. If a con man fakes being a judge and signs the paper, and that gets found out, the adoption would be invalid. Because the validity of the adoption is grounded in, and it comes from, the authority of the judge. When Jesus died on the cross, friends, and then rose again from the grave, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus is God, and so he's always had authority as creator. 
But after his death and resurrection, he now has authority as Savior. When we had a judgment of death hanging over our heads, God's not a corrupt judge who can be bribed to overlook our sinful lives by us doing enough good things to make up for it. No, no. God's not corrupt like that. Sin must be punished. But Jesus came, and as a man, he took the judgment of death for us when he died in our place on the cross. And then to prove that his death was enough to pay for our debt of death, he rose again from the grave. He had paid it all, and so he came back to life. And now, because of what he accomplished through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus has been given authority over life and death. See, for those who deserve death, for those who are born as children of sin and Satan, Jesus has authority to change your family. He has the authority to write over our sentence of death, paid for in full, and he has the authority to sign our adoption papers and make us forever part of God's people. Our hope is a living hope. It will never die out because it is founded upon a person who is alive and he has the authority to make all of God's saving promises come true. I love how theologian and commentator Karen Job says this in her excellent commentary, which is actually on our book recommendation table. If you want to get more into 1 Peter, it's the best resource I know. She writes, Christian hope is ever living because Christ the ground of that hope is ever living. The present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives forevermore. I have a uh, leather notebook that was generously given to me as a gift it has a lifetime guarantee on it. It's backed by the Holtz Leather Company. If it ever rips, like I guess they'll, they'll replace it. They stand behind their work. Friends, the hope of our salvation is backed by Jesus. We have a resurrection guarantee. His empty grave shows that he stands behind his work. He is our living hope. He is our resurrection guarantee. Point number four, the living hope of Jesus is future inheritance. It's a future inheritance. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That, that, that word inheritance is charged with Old Testament meaning. One of the things we're going to be seeing throughout the book of 1 Peter is how many references to the Jewish sacred scriptures are in this book. It's actually one of the most quoted Old Testament books is First Peter outside of Revelation. And this word inheritance comes right from the Old Testament, where we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God promises Abraham he's going to give him a land, and the promise of that land gets referred to as an inheritance. Now what's the big deal about God giving some people some real estate in the Middle East. Well, think about how the Bible starts. It starts with God creating people and giving them a place, the Garden of Eden. And in Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. They experienced fellowship with him, a relationship with him as they, he dwelt with them. 
But as we looked at earlier, Adam and Eve sinned against God and broke the relationship with them. And therefore, they had to leave Eden. And ever since humanity was cast out of that garden, there's been an ache in our souls to get back. We might not have words to describe it. But we all have an inner sense that this world in which we now live is not the place that we were actually made for. There is a dissonance that exists as the harmony of creation has been filled with painfully jarring notes that consistently remind us that things are not how they should be. Every loss suffered. Every sadness experienced. Every longing of our hearts unfulfilled. Every dream dashed. Every dream achieved that does not actually satisfy. Through all those things, we're being reminded again and again that we aren't in Eden anymore. But in Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham an inheritance that he's going to bring his people back to a place where they can dwell with him once more. Saying, I'm going to be with you in an Eden-like place again. And the Israelites got this because when they get to the promised land, what do they do? They, they build a temple. And that temple was the place where God's holy presence dwelt. You know how they decorate it? It's filled with all kinds of garden references. They're, they're recreating in that temple an expression of Eden. And just like Eden was entered in from the east, so too the temple was entered in from the east. This was a place where God was once again dwelling with his people. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that people of Israel fail to live faithfully in God's place. They, they even corrupt the temple, bringing in false gods to worship in that holy sanctuary. Things are defiled. And so the land gets taken away. Once more, God's people are cast out of the place that God had brought them because of their sin against the God who had made them. But in 1 Peter, we see the hope of an inheritance promised. An inheritance that cannot be lost, will not be perished, can never be defiled, and will always exist in unfading glory. This is the promise, friends, of dwelling with God once again. And Peter was there when he heard Jesus say in John chapter 14, uh, verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. See, as these suffering Christians are going through hard times, Peter's saying, don't forget our hope. We have an inheritance that has been promised to us. That which was lost in Eden and never fully realized in Canaan will come true through the better inheritance that Jesus came to bring as we will dwell with God forever in the new heavens and new earth. And we'll never have to leave God's place. Because we're not welcomed into God's place based on our performance. No, now because of Jesus, we get to dwell with God as God's people on the basis of his great mercy. We'll dwell forever not because, with God, not, not because of what we do to earn God's love, but because we are forever loved as the born again children of God in Christ Jesus our Savior. We have a hope of inheritance, friends. We're going to dwell with God forever 
in the place that we were intended to be. And we will never lose it. We will never be cast out. Because Christ was already cast out for us. And so we are always going to be welcomed in as God's beloved children. This is our inheritance that we have waiting for us. The living hope of Jesus is the hope of an inheritance of dwelling with God. And point number five, our final point this morning, the living hope of Jesus is protective power. Verse four says that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That word kept means protected. And so it's saying nothing that can happen in this place can change, alter, or affect the inheritance that we have waiting for us in that place. However, if you're like me, then just knowing that our place with God is being protected isn't all that reassuring. Because how do I know I'm going to make it there? If you're like me, then often when we sin and we fail, doubts and discouragement can begin to set in, and our spiritual strength can just feel sapped. What, what if I'm not going to make it? What if I'm going to make a shipwreck of my faith? In my discouragement, I can feel that. And I doubt I'm the only one. But notice, friends, that this inheritance is not just being kept for us in verse 4, but in verse 5, we're told that we're being kept for it. It's kept for us in heaven, but watch, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, we are being guarded by the very power of God until we realize the full expression of our salvation in Jesus. In Jesus, you have been saved already, but there's a full expression of his salvation coming at the last time. There's so many aspects to, to the great work that Christ has done for us. On the one hand, there's a past aspect. In Jesus, we have been saved from the penalty of sin in the past. And so when you believed in Jesus, you were in that moment justified, declared righteous. Your sins were placed on Christ. His righteousness was placed on you. We have been saved from the penalty of sin in the past, never to be undone. That's final. But also now, you are being saved from the power of sin in the present. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You no longer live as its slave. You can say no to sin's temptation and say yes to the righteous ways of Jesus. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And in the final phase of salvation, you will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin will not exist in the world to come. And so on that day, when you enter into your inheritance in Christ, you will then be fully and finally completely delivered from all decay and all sickness and trouble and conflict and pain and suffering and grief and guilt and sorrow and loss and tears and hatred and disappointment and misunderstanding and weakness and failure and ignorance and confusion and imperfections and slanders. On and on and on, we are going to be fully delivered from every aspect of this broken world. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power. And praise be to God, we will be saved one day from sin's presence. This is the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. And when we experience the salvation, our story is not going to be, look at how I made it. 
No, our story is going to be, look at how God kept me. God not only makes our salvation possible, he promises to make sure that we will one day fully experience it. Think about like a surprise party. Someone makes a party, but then they have to make sure that you get there. The party is prepared for you, and then you are safely brought to it. This is what God is promising us in these verses. He he has prepared a place for us, and he's going to make sure that we get there. And so Christian, when you find your faith flagging, when your doubts feel like a cloud, and you're just not sure if you're going to make it, when your discouragement about your sin is like a weight resting heavy on your heart, when fears are crippling you and anxieties threaten to paralyze you, when there is pressure being put on you by a culture that is hostile to God to compromise your faith, to capitulate and give in to what the culture values, what the culture affirms, instead of what God says is right, holy, and true. Friends, our hope that we're going to make it Our hope that we're going to survive life in exile and that we're going to come home. Our hope is that the almighty maker of the universe who spoke the world into existence and upholds every atom by his omnipotent power, he holds us. He is guarding us. And he says we're going to make it home. We're going to make it home, friends, in other words, not because our faith is strong, but because God is all-powerful. He is our hope. And so as we come to a close, friends, when you see that gaslight of low fuel popping up on your faith, when you feel like you're running on empty, when living in this hopeless world just starts to get at you again, And learned helplessness begins to creep in. I hope you can come here to First Peter and find some fuel for your faith in the living hope of Jesus Christ. I I hope that you, you learn how to warm your hearts with joyful praise. That you remember your spiritual rebirth. That you see the empty tomb of Christ and his resurrection guarantee that you look forward to your future inheritance of dwelling with God, and that you rest in the peace of knowing the Almighty is protecting you. Living in exile can be hard. But praise be to God that there's living hope. And fuel for our faith comes from the living hope of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.